I was around when we launched this campus, and uh, at Leewood, when we actually describe our mission as a church uh, to, to newer people, uh, we talk about the Shawnee campus and lovingly call this campus our granddaughter uh, because uh, we, like Leewood helped to launch Olathe, and Olathe really primarily helped to launch Shawnee. And so, it, like I said, it's a, it's a privilege for me to be here. I hope you'll have me back, but we'll see how that goes. Um, so you, you may, uh, there's some familiar faces in here, but you, you probably don't know me super well. So I want to play a little game, okay, to get to know each other. It's called What's Your Favorite? It's really simple. I'm going to put images on the screen. I'm going to describe them. And you're going to raise your hand if one of them is your favorite over the other. Does that all make sense? Okay, good, good. Okay, it's really, don't be intimidated. So favorite color, green or blue? If it's green, raise your hand. If it's blue, raise your hand. So the blues have it, okay. Favorite candy, Snickers or M&M's? This one's important. Snickers, raise your hand. M&M's, raise your hand. Yep, Snickers, that makes sense to me. Favorite Star Wars movie? Is it Empire Strikes Back or is it Empire Strikes Back? Raise your hand. Either way. It's going to get worse, guys. Okay, just, just shout this one out. Okay, this one, this is the easiest one. Favorite kid. Is it your oldest kid? Is it your youngest kid? Boy, girl? Don't, don't answer that one. Don't, don't do that. The counseling required after that is you don't want to do that. Here's the lesson, though. Favorites are fine. Favorites are fine. Favorite color, favorite candy, favorite sports team, favorite restaurant, totally fine until they're not Right? Favorite people, totally different thing. Favorites at church, even worse. That, that's what James is going to talk to us about today. So if you were here a couple of weeks ago, uh, you know we have started a new series in the book of James. Uh, and Pastor James, if you're not familiar, Pastor James uh, is the, was the, basically the senior pastor of the Jerusalem church in the early Christian movement. He's the half-brother of Jesus, an incredibly influential leader uh, in the book of Acts, for example. You see his name all over the place. And James's heart here, as he writes this letter to Jewish Christians who likely came to faith at, at Pentecost and were quickly scattered across the region due to persecution. He's writing to that group of people, and he's his heart is for them to hold on to real faith, which is why this series is called Real Faith, which is not just real belief. It's not just real doctrine, okay? It's, it's, it's not just believing the right things. Actually, believing the right things is the easy part, believe it or not. James wants real faith. And by that we mean he desires in, these, in this congregation whole life transformation that actually changes how we love, how we live, and perhaps most importantly for our purposes today, how, how we treat one another within the Christian family. And real faith like that has nothing to do with favoritism. In fact, what James is going to show us is that favoritism, okay, playing favorites, is not just a mistake it's not just a sin or a disobedience that actively hurts other people. It is that, but it actually is a choice. It's a decision that dampens real faith. 
It's perhaps even worse than that. James is going to put this really starkly, okay? The more favorites we play, the less faith we have. The more favorites we play, the less faith we have. These two things, faith and favorites, they're so incompatible, they're so opposite, that to have one of more of them is to have less of the other in three specific ways. That's what I want to, I want to talk about today. So if you have your Bible and you haven't gotten that out yet, turn to the book of James. Use your table of contents if you have to. James chapter 2. As we said, James is writing this to Jewish Christians who have, have fled the Jewish authorities. Many left behind jobs and families and friends and homes because they worship Jesus as Messiah. They're accused of blasphemy for doing that. They believe Jesus rose from the dead. It's amazing. And they, and they hang on to their faith in these circumstances. How easy it would have been. Think about it. Put yourself in their position. How easy it would have been to simply return to the Jewish faith and worship that they knew, right? to get their normal lives back. But they don't do that. But they still struggle to have real faith, whole faith. And one of the issues James addresses is favoritism. And, he, and to, to illustrate his point, James gives a hypothetical scenario. That's basically what he does. This is verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in, in our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down here at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So I want us to focus on the first part of James's little scenario here. The situation is really straightforward. It's easy to wrap your mind around. Imagine you're a greeter on a Sunday morning, like just like today. You're a greeter, you're out at the front doors, here at the Shawnee campus, normal Sunday. But then all of a sudden, James says, right, imagine Pat Mahomes walks in, okay? Most of you are, you're already wearing his jersey, most of you out here. So just hypothetically, it's a Monday night game, so he can come to church, he decides to come here. He walks to the front door. You shake his hand. You offer a few schematic thoughts and uh, play ideas for the game. Like, hey, win, win more too soon. Okay. Uh, so you, right, you're like, hey, let me show you around. You take him, you show him the coffee, you show him, or the, you give him extra donut holes. You take Ster Sterling Sky. His, his baby girl, you take her straight to Katie and you say, your hands only, no one else touches this child, just you, right? You, you accidentally brush up against his arm and you can feel the electric power radiating out of it. He signs your form.life book. You say, hey, this is our discipleship, but will you, you sign it? And you bring him into this room. You bring him into this very room and you put him uh, right up here in front, right? The, the seat right in the soak zone for whoever's preaching. You put him here. So everybody can see him. It's the place of honor in the sanctuary. You spend all morning fawning over this guy. You do for Pat. You do for Pat Mahomes as a greeter. What you have never and could never do for everybody else that you welcome. And that right there is the problem. Because what James says here, and I'm going to explain this, but what he basically says is we can favor the rich or we can trust Jesus. But what we cannot do is both. 
Now, when Jabez, again, when he talks about the rich here, it's not, he, he doesn't just mean the materially wealthy, though that's almost always going to be the case. But really what he's getting at here is somebody who can offer you something. Somebody who can help you with something. Remember, at this time, when sociologists and economists, when they study this, this, the, uh, this world, the ancient world, the Greco-Roman world, they describe it as a patron-client economy. And by that, we mean that to get anything done, you needed to know influential, wealthy people. Okay? If you're in the construction business and you want that contract from the Roman government to fix that road or to, right, to build that aqueduct, you've got to know people to get you in the room. You've got to know people to get you the permits and the approvals to get all that done, right? to, to work the bureaucracy. So you would cuddle up to wealthy people to get work. Now, thankfully, our world today doesn't work anything like that. Okay? We don't. It's not about who you know anymore, right? We're never tempted to treat wealthy people better than other people because they don't have nothing to offer us anymore. We never say things like, well, that person, that person can get me a contract with that influential business here in town. That, that, I'm going to treat them differently than my other friends. This person has the resources to help me get my business off the ground. So I'm going to cut corners on this deal just this one time just to build a relationship with this person. We never say, this person makes me feel good about myself. They make me feel cared and loved and cared for and loved and popular. So I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to participate with them in something I know I shouldn't do because I need to be their friend. I need to be in a relationship with them. Okay. You're probably wondering, how long is he going to keep this sarcastic tone going? I could do this all day. But the point is, right? of course, of course we're tempted to do this. This is human nature. Of course, we're tempted to show favoritism to somebody or anybody that we think can help us with something, an employee over another, a friend over another, even a family member over another. And listen, what James is pointing out is that the way we treat a certain kind of client, a certain kind of student or customer over another is an indicator of something. And here's what I think it is. It's an indicator that somewhere deep down in our heart of hearts, Perhaps we'd never say this out loud, but we believe that this person or that this kind of person has something to offer us that Jesus does not. So we need this person more than we need him in this specific part of our lives. Okay, James's point, when we favor the wealthy and the influential or the famous or the popular or the cool or the put together over other people, we're showing fundamentally a lack of trust in Jesus to give us that thing that we think this person can actually deliver on. So I want us to ask, I want us to do some self-evaluation. Ask yourself the question, whose favor are we after? Whose favor are we after? And I bet if we took a minute and thought about it, we would come up with somebody other than Jesus. We would come up with somebody who, when they walk in the room, we sit up a little straighter, we listen a little harder, we work a little better. We're more tempted to bend the rules for them, and it's none of this is out of the goodness of our heart, right? It's because there's something we want from them. There's somebody. Let me put this even stronger. There's somebody in our lives whose affirmation we would rather have than Jesus' affirmation. There's somebody in our lives we would rather spend time with than Jesus. There's somebody maybe we'd rather meet at church than Jesus. Okay, whose favor 
are we after? Now listen, we can do that. We can pursue that relationship. We can pursue that person. We can ignore James's warning here. But what we cannot do is have our cake and eat it too. You cannot show favoritism and have faith in Jesus, real faith, at the same time. The moment we start to favor certain people because of what we think they can do for us other, over other kinds of people that we think can do nothing for us, we've diminished our real faith in Jesus. And this is where James goes next. So same scenario. Okay, but now the opposite side of the coin. So you're greeting again. Now it's the next Sunday. Pat no-shows. He doesn't come back. It's typical. After everything you did for him. But then, so you're about, the service is about to start, and you're thinking, okay, it's time to go inside. But you see off on the parking lot, you see somebody coming to church. They're headed right for you. They've got a shopping cart. And you notice, man, it's full of junk. And they walk in. You, you say hello, because that's your job. But mostly you just want them to kind of move on. Just, just get in if you're going to be here. But they stop. They cling to you. And they say, hey, I, can you show me around? So you say, well, here's the coffee, and here's the donuts, and here's the bathroom. But you really care. You make sure they don't, want it. They don't take too much, because you're ready for them to take advantage of you. This person doesn't smell particularly good, and so when you bring them here into this room, you put them as far back as you possibly can. Even though you can tell that like, they don't see super well, they don't hear super well, they're probably not going to have the best experience there in the back. But honestly, if they never came back, it would be a relief to you. The problem is how you felt about Pat Mahomes is how Jesus feels about this person. And you have no idea. Because as James points out here, we, we can ignore the poor or we can love who Jesus loves. But we cannot do both. Here's how we know how Jesus would feel about this person. Listen to James verse 5 in chapter 2. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him. Now, listen, there's some misconceptions sometimes about how God interacts with the poor, okay? God loves everyone equally. James is not saying that God plays favorites with the poor or only shows grace to poor people. In fact, we know there are materially wealthy people in the very congregation James is writing to. He addresses them explicitly in chapter 1, verse 10. God does not play favorites with grace, but James reminds us here that God has chosen those who are poor in the world. Probably the best way to understand that is poor according to the world. By the world standards. He has chosen the poor in the world to be rich in his kingdom. And James knows and his readers know that lots and lots of poor people, discarded people, ignored people are coming to faith in Jesus. In fact, one of the earliest arguments against Christianity from the Greco-Roman pagan philosophers was, look how many poor people are following this guy. If you have any education, if you have any class, if you have any status at all, you should have nothing to do with this movement. That was an argument against Christianity in the ancient world. Right? James knows this. This congregation knows this. Lots of poor people, marginalized people, okay? vulnerable people are attracted to Jesus because of his message. And that may look like favoritism to the world, but only because the world has never shown favor to these kinds of people. God's love for the poor, here's what I mean. God's love for the poor 
says less about him and his priorities than it generally does about us and ours. James is reminding us that the very people, the same people that we tend to ignore, we tend to look down upon, avoid, or judge, are the very people Jesus goes out of his way to welcome into his spiritual family. This theme, by the way, is all over the Bible. It's not just James. This theme of reversal, where the low are made high, and the higher brought low, the poor, the widow, and the orphan, God choosing what is foolish and poor and downtrodden to shame the wise and the rich and the well-to-do, it is everywhere. It's in Moses, it's in Paul, it's in James, and of course it's in Jesus. All of their teaching. The people nobody wants to be around are the people Jesus desperately wants to be around. Now, if Jesus loves these people, just like we would love and serve Pat Mahomes if he showed up, then we must love and serve these others. But do we? Okay, this is James' question. Who do we not want to serve? Ask, again, ask yourself, who do we not want to serve? Now, I can't answer this for you. But again, I, I think we all have an answer. More than likely, it's someone vulnerable. It's somebody who needs more help, someone that doesn't fit in, someone who is maybe not easy to love, to serve, or to get to know. Being poor in this sense that we're talking about is not just material wealth. It's, it's mostly that, especially for James, but it also means people who, for one reason or another, need a little extra effort from you, usually having to do with their material circumstances. Now, this person, right, in your mind, and again, you probably, you'd never say this, but in your, in your heart, you say, I don't want to serve them because they need so much more help. Or, or we blame them for their circumstances. Okay, whatever their problem is, right? in our heart of hearts, we blame them. We have no empathy. It's your fault you're poor. It's your fault you're a single parent. It's your fault you're an immigrant. It's your fault you're unemployed. It's your fault you're an addict, so you don't deserve my attention. You don't deserve my affection. You don't deserve my help. Okay? We all have somebody. So who is that for you? And how do we grow in our ability to see them as Jesus sees them? Because whoever them is for you, if James is right, then Jesus sees them as heirs to his eternal glorious kingdom, as sons and daughters. Do we see them that way? And here's our last point, because until we get this last point, we're not going to see anybody like that. Okay, this is, this is verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the whole, the whole law, is James's idea. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. Okay, James is reminding us here of something that Jesus taught. If you remember, when Jesus summarized the whole law, when, when Jesus summarized the will of God, in the world, for all humanity. He summarized it in two commands. Do you remember? 
He said, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. If you ever find yourself in a situation where you're like, God, I don't know what to do, remember, he says, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, when Jesus teaches this, right, James internalizes this, and he renames it the law of liberty. Isn't that interesting? Right? He doesn't call it a law of obligation. He says this is a law of liberty. It's a, it's a freedom-giving law. As Jesus followers, James is saying we do not follow Jesus' teaching here. We don't love our neighbor, especially our vulnerable neighbor, our hard-to-love neighbor, because we have to do that. We do it because we know that our faith, when it works itself out in love, is, re- is a response to the love and the freedom that we've received in Jesus, which liberates us from the consequences of sin and death. It's a law of liberty on the heart. This was always God's goal, to make a people on whose heart is written the law of liberty, to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's what real faith is. And James reminds us, this is an indicator. We'll be judged by this. Our ability to love our neighbor, to serve one another without favoritism is a sign of whether we have received mercy from Jesus at all. And as James points out, he says, judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Here's how I would summarize this. Here's what I think James is saying. Here's what real faith is. We can justify ourselves or we can receive mercy but we cannot do both. And this is really where James, I think, has been going all along. The real problem underneath all these other problems, the fundamental contradiction between favoritism and faith is this. Anytime we show selfish favoritism to the rich among us or we show indifference or neglect to the poor and the vulnerable among us, we have forgotten how much mercy we have received in Jesus. We have have disconnected What we believe is true of us from how we treat other people. We have forgotten our poverty before the Lord of the universe. We've forgotten our culpability, our guilt before the judge. We've forgotten our unlovableness before the Father that had to be dealt with on the cross of grace. This is the disconnect. And the more we internalize and trust and believe in Jesus' mercy for us, the more mercy and the more love and the more compassion and service will be evident in us toward other people. There's a direct relationship between how loved we know we are and how much mercy we show to those around us. Notice with me, this is why Jesus always points out that the ones who love him the best are the ones who what? Have received the most mercy. Jesus' point, when he, when he says that, his point is not that people like sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors need more mercy than the religious teachers and the Pharisees and the scribes. It's that they are willing to receive more mercy from him than those others. It's also why the poor and the oppressed are almost always examples of faith in the Bible. James highlights that again here. They know their need for mercy. They receive it. Gladly. It is those of us, probably most of us in this room, who seem to have all that we need, who are most at risk of this disconnect, of forgetting what mercy it took just for us to be in this room together. If and when we find, okay, and we all do this, 
if and when we find that we feel better about ourselves, when we start justifying ourselves, when we consider that, well, at least we aren't poor, like that person. At least I'm not uh, broken like that person. At least I'm a natural citizen here. At least I'm not a single mom. I'm not addicted. I'm not in the unemployment line. I'm popular. That is the precise moment when we must reconsider ourselves in light of grace. Remember with me, when the Bible describes us, okay, if you belong to Jesus, when the Bible describes us, it calls us rebels, outcasts, exiles, brought near by the blood of Jesus. Okay. Reconsider yourself in those categories. So ask yourself today, okay, who needs your mercy? Who needs your mercy? This word mercy here is, is very closely related to other ideas like love, service, forgiveness, grace, patience. Who needs your mercy? Where are you withholding it? Remember, Jesus himself taught that to be in his kingdom meant that happy are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Okay? When it's so easy to judge, it's easier than ever to judge. To judge the poor for being poor, or the promiscuous for being lonely, or the immature for getting nowhere, or the addict for being a mess, or the loser for having no friends. When it is so easy to judge, who needs your mercy? And remember, this is where James finished, mercy triumphed over judgment in your life. If you are here, you are publicly proclaiming to anyone paying attention that you believe God himself came to earth in Christ and died for you, lived for you, died for you, rose again for you because of the judgment in your life, but mercy triumphed over it. If that is true, where does your mercy need to triumph over judgment? Who do you not want to serve? Who do you not want to forgive? Who do you not want to acknowledge, not want to love because it's hard or it's uncomfortable or it's inconvenient? I'm not talking about being best friends or giving trust where it's not deserved or not having boundaries with certain people in your life. I'm asking who needs your mercy because we have received so much mercy. Jesus never withholds mercy from you. Never. That's the deal. No matter how hard we are to love, he never walks out of the room. He is always here. When that promise grabs a hold of us, when we see on the cross mercy triumphing over judgment, when we believe that scandalous mercy has entered our lives, then we begin to understand what Jesus meant when he said, blessed are the merciful, because he's saying, because they are the most like me. May that be true of us. May that be true of us. Let's pray to him now. Father, that mercy triumphed over our judgment in Jesus, we give you thanks. Holy Spirit, empower your people to give mercy. to any and all who cross our path. Not out of a sense of obligation, not out of a sense of manipulation, but as an overflow of the mercy we have received from Jesus. Father, hear our prayer. Holy Spirit, work in and among your people. 
We pray all these things in Jesus' name.
part of our response this morning is to say the Apostles' Creed together, to reaffirm out loud what we believe to be true of the world. The words will be on screen now. Say the Apostles' Creed with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. If you can affirm these words that are true over your lives, then you are welcome to the Lord's table. When you're ready, we have a station here in the front. We have one over here on the right uh, where you will be served communion in groups of, of five or six. Receive the mercy that triumphs over judgment. If you're not yet ready to meet uh, in a group, that's fine. We have a self-serve station right over here on the left. Whenever you are ready, and if you are his, come to his table. Thank you.